Good morning. We'd like to welcome you to church on this beautiful fifth Sunday of Easter as we continue to celebrate together the resurrection of our Lord. Please stand and join us as we sing his praises together. All creatures of our God and King, lift up your voice and eyes and sing. Oh, praise Him.
Please be seated. We're at that point in the year when the uh, college semester is drawing to a close. And uh, we've done this for a number of years, taking a few moments in this service to offer prayer for college graduates. So if uh, we're going to ask you to do something embarrassing, we're going to ask you to stand if you're a college grad, you're graduating this year. And I'd like to encourage people who are around them. You might have to go a little bit of a distance, but we want to uh, surround them with prayer, maybe lay a hand on the shoulder. So if you are graduating this year from college, please stand. And we'll do high school graduations in a few weeks. But if you're graduating from college, please stand. We've got a few in the balcony. And um, those of you who may be around, those who are standing, please uh, come up behind them. Gather around them as we pray together. Father, we come today and we celebrate each of these lives that are standing here before us. Thank you so much for all that you've done in them in the years of their education. And thank you for your faithfulness in the days ahead. Lord, we, we thank you so much for the gift of education. I suspect that we have a tendency to take it for granted. I pray that we will embrace this gift you've given us and that as these are ending their time here and are moving on to the next stage of life, I pray that you would fill them with your spirit. Give them confidence about the future because of you. Help them in the decisions that they are needing to make for the next steps of life and the steps that follow down the road. We pray, Father, that you will keep them close to you. Keep them ever growing in you and desiring you and having a passion for you. And Father, we pray that that they will be beacons of light in this world of need, wherever they go and whatever they do. In whatever avenues of life you lead them, whatever decisions they make about the future, may they know that you go with them. And may they live in the truth of your love and grace and presence. Thank you for each one of these graduates. Pour out the abundance of your blessing upon them. And we ask this through Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. Again, as we are coming to this place in the semester, our... Sunday worship schedule changes a little bit. Uh, Beginning next week, we will not have a 940 service uh, for the rest of the summer, but uh, we'll have services at 830 and 11 o'clock. So just take note of that, that beginning next week, we move to 830 and 11 o'clock worship schedule. And uh, just print it on the back of your bulletin for you to have. So just note that. Also, um, we, if you're going to be around uh, in May and maybe even in the summer, if you're interested in working with children or uh, are willing to do that, we have some needs for working with Children's Church at our, each of the services. We'd love to have you be a part of that. 
you can sign up uh, in the back uh, four years you leave today or just contact the church office where you connected to the right people who can uh, then get you connected to helping to serve. And we appreciate your ministry to our children. There are also a couple of inserts in your bulletin. One of them is an opportunity to help with our food pantry and some new things that we're doing and reaching out to people around us in need. And if you're interested in helping with that, you can fill that out. You can drop in the offering plate or hand it to one of the ushers or pastors this morning after the service. And the other insert is about Nepal. And if you've had a moment at all to, to look at what's going on in Nepal, it's gut-wrenching. And we want to do something about that. Uh, Christina Montoro, who is a student at the academy, has really felt a burden about this. And so she's going to share just a couple minutes about uh, her burden and some ways in which we can be involved in helping. Good morning. A 7.8 magnitude earthquake hit on Saturday, April 25th in Nepal. And the aftershocks have been over 6 in magnitude. About 7,000 people have been killed Thousands are displaced, and people are living in tents because their houses aren't safe. The Academy has a relationship with a ministry in Nepal called Sarah's House. That stands for the Savior Alone Reaches Asians. They are among the multitudes that are sleeping in tents. There have been many organizations that have sent aid to to Nepal. Some of them are Samaritan's Purse, the Red Cross, the Mercy Corps, and Catholic Relief Services. The Lord laid it on my heart to do something, so I wanted to share this with you. These people need our help. I ask that you keep them in your prayers daily. Also, as Pastor West said, in your bulletin, there's an insert that can assist you if you would like to send a check to the earthquake relief effort. This will help the Wesleyan Church assist the people in Nepal. I'd like to invite the ushers forward to assist us as we give back to God, but a portion of all that he has given to us. To love you more Turn our attentions From this empty world Help us count all things For your name lost That we may know you more And the glory of the cross Come change our hearts Come change our hearts Come change
Please be seated. We do want to spend some time praying this morning about Nepal, about the situation in Baltimore and other places of the country where there is unrest. We're asking for God's grace and peace and uh, his healing power in these difficult places, as well as the needs that we all represent. So as we pray this morning, I want to invite you, if you if you like, to come to the altar and offer your prayer here, your prayer for the world, your prayer for our nation, prayer for yourself and others. If you'd like to use the altar as a place where you pray, come join me. Father, it is the desire of our hearts that you would change us. Help us to see that there is nothing like you. That nothing can can reach into that, that longing in our spirits and bring healing and restoration and all that we desire but you. So Father, indeed, come change our hearts. Father, we this is our prayer because we know that's your desire. Your desire is to work in us, to transform us, to make us new. And it's your desire for the world as well. Lord, this morning we pray for those in our lives, even maybe for ourselves who are grieving today. Our grief comes in such different forms. It takes on different characteristics. And some of it is is new, some of it's old, but it's grief all the same. We pray for your comforting presence upon us. We pray for your healing power in our lives and in those connected to us. We pray today especially for Derek Maston, Beulah Avery, Jill Tyson, Bruce Brenneman, Bev Rett, Micah Christensen, Belinda Roth, Dick Gould, Tim Nichols, Edna Howard, Crystal Blake, Emily Crickler, others who are on our minds and hearts today. Work your healing grace in each of them. Help them to know that you love them, that you're at work in them. And may they know our prayers. Father, we pray for this world in which we live. Think of our brothers and sisters who live in places of the world where they can't worship openly as we can, who face opposition, threats, persecution, death, simply because they are followers of Jesus. We pray for your grace upon them, your protective care, and a powerful witness for you. And Father, we pray for the people of Nepal The images are gut-wrenching. We know that whatever pain we feel about it, yours is deeper, more intense, because you love these people you've created and you know. Father, we pray 
for your grace to bear on this great tragedy. We pray that, that the earthquakes will stop. We pray that you will help those who are in the relief effort. We pray that you will give comfort to all who are grieving. For all who are injured, we pray for your healing. And we ask, Father, that restoration will come as people of the world join together to help the people of Nepal. Father, we pray for our own nation and the, and the civil unrest and all that's happening in Baltimore and Ferguson and other places. Father, the one thing we see is that we are a people who still need to be healed of all the things that divide us. Racism, class structures, Lord, it's so easy for us in our comfortable lives to sit back and judge or even worse, be apathetic. Father, we pray that you will help us and your people to be catalysts of hope, not just about getting through these circumstances, but bringing about real change through the grace of Jesus, through the power of your Holy Spirit. Father, we pray that you will work miraculously as you alone can do. We thank you that you care, that you're at work, that you are, that no situation is hopeless to you. We pray, Father, for your miraculous work in these situations. Father, thank you for hearing our prayers. Thank you for your loving kindness in our lives, your faithfulness, your goodness. We offer our prayers today and every day in the name and power of Jesus Christ. As we remember the prayer he taught his disciples to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Scripture this morning is taken from the book of John, chapter 21, verses 1 through 14. Would you please stand for the reading of the gospel? Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons, the sons from, of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish. Simon Peter told them, and they said, We'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, Friends, haven't you any fish? 
No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the the net full of fish, for they were not far from the shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals, there with fish on it, and some bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish you have just caught. Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not thorn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This was how the third this was the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. This is the gospel of the Lord. Before you're seated, uh, share a word of greeting with others who are here in worship today. The moments in your life when you tend to expect to experience something of God. And are there moments in your life where you tend not to expect experiences from God? I have a feeling that we all have this sense that there are particular moments that are more spiritual than other moments. Coming to church, reading our Bibles, praying. Those moments that we think, okay, these are the spiritual times of life. And then there are the other times of life where we just go about doing our stuff without really any expectation or little expectation that God is a part of that. I've been pondering that idea and that dichotomy of thought that we tend to have as I've been reading again this last chapter of John's gospel. Now, you get the feeling when you get to the end of chapter 20 that John is done. The last words he writes in chapter 20 are, I've written this so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah and believing on him may have life in his name. You can almost see him writing the end. And then it's as though something hits him. Oh, I forgot. And chapter 21 is not an addendum because addendums tend to be disconnected from what's come before. It, it's an epilogue. And without chapter 21, the story wouldn't be complete. There is much here in chapter 21 that is 
beneficial for us and, and we need to think about. And over the next few weeks, we're going to be doing just that. But today, I want us to think about what chapter 21 says to us about how God speaks into our lives and how we experience God in all of life. And especially as we think about things like fishing and eating. The disciples are now in Galilee. They've been in Jerusalem. Jesus has appeared to them twice, both times in Jerusalem. On the night of of his resurrection, he appears to them in the upper room. And then a week later, he appears again in that same room. And you'd think they'd stay in Jerusalem. That's the center of activity. Jerusalem is the place. Jerusalem is where all the great spiritual things happen. That's where they should be. But now we find them in Galilee and There are people who are saying, why are they in Galilee? It doesn't make any sense. Well, the reason they're in Galilee is because Jesus said to them, after I've appeared to you, go to Galilee. And I will appear to you again. And so they've gone to Galilee and they're waiting for Jesus to appear again. We don't know exactly how much time passes, but you get a sense that a significant amount of time has gone by as they're sitting there twiddling their thumbs, wondering, where is Jesus? And eventually... Peter, who's always the impetuous one, says, I can't take this anymore. I'm going fishing. And the other guy says, yeah, we'll go with you. We'll go fishing. Now, there are people who have interpreted that as they've turned their backs on Jesus. They've given up on Jesus. I don't think so. I think they're simply just saying we need to do something. And what do they know? They've spent most of their adult lives fishing. So let's go fishing. And they spend the night fishing. They don't catch anything. Next morning, there's a guy standing on the beach. He says, throw your boat, your nets to the other side. They do. They get a great haul of fish. They realize it's Jesus. They come in. And when they come in, Jesus has some fish cooking. He says, bring more. And he hand, John says, the end of this, he says, Jesus gave them fish and he gave them bread. And they ate. And there is in that description a sense of the sacramental. It, 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 it causes you to, to think back a few weeks, to the night in Jerusalem, in the upper room, where Jesus institutes for the very first time the sacrament of Holy Communion, the Lord's Supper, as he hands them bread and he hands them the wine and and they eat and they drink. And you sort of have that sense as John describes this and it becomes in that a holy moment, a holy sacramental moment. But as I read this passage, I don't think it's a holy moment just because it might be tied to that, that time weeks before, I think it's a holy moment because Jesus has brought himself into the ordinary things of their lives. Jesus interjects himself into their normal everyday work of fishing. And Jesus interjects himself into the normal everyday moment of eating. And there have been people through the ages who have had this mindset that eating is a necessary evil. Now, I'm not one of those people. Uh, I I like to eat. I look forward to eating. I think it's one of the greatest things God gave us is the ability to eat and and to engage in that. But there are people who have had this mindset that that it's a necessary evil, that if if, if there was any way that we could exist without eating we would be more spiritual. 
Because the need to eat is a human urging. And the whole goal of being uh, holy is to get rid of the human urgings. And so if we could possibly exist without eating, that would be better. That would be more spiritual. But Jesus doesn't seem to agree with that perspective. How many times do we find Jesus through the Gospels sitting down at a table and eating with people? It's interesting to me that in this moment that the disciples recognize Jesus... John says, no one dared ask him who he was because they knew it was the Lord. When John makes that statement, not after Jesus performs some great miracle or not after some great teaching, but after he says, hey guys, come and have breakfast. And when they pull the boat onto the shore, Jesus' first words to them are not, so guys, tell me about your devotions this week. His first word to them is, anybody hungry? Because Jesus is interested. He's involved in those normal everyday things like eating. You think about the feeding of the 5,000. And Jesus is out there teaching teaching them all day. People haven't had anything to eat. And Jesus doesn't say... Oh, man, if these people didn't need to eat, we could get some serious work done here. I've got a lot more stuff to teach them. We only got to page three of the workbook. We got a long ways to go here. And if they didn't have to eat, we could finish it. But hey, you work with what you've got. So guys, go get them some food. And the disciples look at him and say, don't look at us. That's not our job. Our job is to help feed them spiritually. Let somebody else take care of their physical needs. And Jesus stops them right there and says, no, that's not how the kingdom works. I created these people as holistic beings. I'm concerned about every part of them, their spirit and their body. And I want you to take care of that. And Jesus feeds them. And there is as much of God in the feeding of those people as there is in the teaching of the people. God's in all of it. We don't live these divided lives that we sometimes think we do. God is in all of life. In our eating, in our working. There are things about our work that, quite frankly, are kind of mundane, uninteresting. We get those moments where we think, okay, that's exciting. And we grab hold of that. And we maybe see something of God in that. But the reality is probably a lot of what we do is repetitious. It's monotonous. And I'm here to tell you this morning that Jesus is in those moments too. In the ordinary, everyday moments of our lives, Jesus is speaking into our lives Jesus is present in our lives in those moments as much as the spectacular. Now, we miss a lot of that because we're looking for Jesus primarily in the spectacular. We're looking for Jesus in the moments that we call spiritual. Those those big moments that we can say, wow, look at God. But, But God embraces every moment of life. 
maybe even the monotonous and the boring and the routine at least as much, if not more, than those spectacular moments that we're looking for. I think about Naaman in 2 Kings 5. He's a commander in the Syrian army. He gets leprosy and he has a girl, a servant girl who's from Israel. And she says, I know a prophet who can take care of that for you. Great. So he goes to Elisha's door. He knocks on Elisha's door. And Elisha's servant comes to the door. He tells him the situation. The servant goes and talks to the prophet. And the servant comes back and says to him, the prophet says, go wash in the Jordan River seven times and you'll be healed. And the guy, does, Naaman doesn't say, well, that's easy. Okay, great. He's irritated. Really? That's it? That's all I'm getting? I mean, I figured that at least, first of all, I'd get to talk to the prophet himself, a holy man, not the servant. And I figured he'd come out and he'd do some incantation over me and he'd sprinkle some stuff on me and he'd do something spectacular so that everyone would stand back and go, ooh, and then I'd be healed. I can wash in cleaner rivers in Syria than I can here. I'm going home. And he's got a servant who's got a lot of guts and who loves him. And he says to him, um, sir, if he'd asked you to do something spectacular, you would have done it. Something hard. So why not do something easy? Okay. And he goes and washes in the river and he's healed. And I have a feeling we tend to think about our daily walk with God in the same way. We just think God can only work in the moments that we consider spectacular. God works in these spectacular ways. God works in moments that we call spiritual. When all the while he does that, but all the while he's working in every moment of our lives. In the monotonous, the routine, the mundane, the ordinary. I read an article recently in Christianity Today by Bradley Nasif. It was an article, I think it was titled, The Monotony of Work. And uh, he spent a lot of time talking about how the uh, desert fathers and mothers of the 4th and 5th century viewed work. And life was hard for them, but, but, and work was hard for them, but they, they viewed work as what he called heavenly sandpaper. That the everyday idea of work was the way in which God could help rub off some of the rough areas of their lives. And it was a way for God to teach them and to get into their lives and to work in their lives. And they talked about how it's not just that the fact that we go out and we till the soil to see something grow. But we are always thinking, how is tilling the soil helping us to grow? He tells the story of a man named John the Dwarf who one day says to his elder brother, I am so tired of everyday mundane life. I want to get out of this. I want to be like the angels. I want to just go out and be free of work and worship God unceasingly all the time. And so he takes off his cloak and he goes into the desert. And a week later he comes back. He knocks on the door of his home and his brother opens the door and he says, who are you? He says, it's me, John, your brother. He says, no, it can't be my brother because my brother's an angel now. 
He's worshiping God unceasingly. He doesn't do mortal things. He doesn't walk the earth anymore. He says, no, it's really me. It's me. And his brother just shuts the door. And he leaves them there overnight. And the next morning, he opens the door and he says to him, you do realize that if you're going to live on this earth, and particularly if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, you work. And you work so you can eat. And you work so God can work in your life. And John falls down before him and asks his forgiveness. The ancient fathers saw work as one of the primary means for God to develop Christ-likeness in us. They said our highest vocation is not the kind of work we do. Our highest vocation is the kind of people we become while we're doing it. Because God is in it. You know, I, I, I've been interested in the last oh, few decades that how uh, the, some parts of the church have, have gone to, have changed one of the names of the seasons of the church year. You know, there's Advent and Christmas, Epiphany, Lent, Easter, and then we come to Pentecost. Pentecost is in a couple of weeks. And Pentecost celebrates the coming of the Holy Spirit, the birth of the church. And Pentecost season starts this year to be May 24th, and it continues all the way until Advent at the end of November. 20-some Sundays. And what has happened is, in some places, a number of churches have started used, instead of saying it's the... Twelfth Sunday after Pentecost, they're talking, talking about the twelfth Sunday in ordinary time. And that season, at the day of Pentecost, and then it becomes ordinary time. And I kind of like and dislike that phrase. I dislike it because it, it sends the impression, it gives the impression that, that compared to the other times, this is just ordinary time. You know, the other seasons, now Advent, now that's a season. Lent, now there's a season, but this is just ordinary time. And so I don't like it for that reason. But on the other hand, I do like it because it reminds us that, quite frankly, a lot of life is ordinary time. And God's in that. And it's just as important as Advent and Lent and Epiphany and Christmas and Easter. And God speaks into ordinary time. Just as he speaks into what we call extraordinary time. I think part of our struggle is that we forget how God, we have a mistaken view of the kingdom. Because we have a tendency to think that that God is all about getting to the end. Because that's how we tend to think. How fast can I get to the end? Whereas when I read the scriptures and I look at the lives of God's great holy people, it was never about the end. It's about the journey. It's about day by day by day by day. And yes, God is concerned and interested about getting us to the end. But we get to the end not by trying to race there, but by living every day in the presence of Christ. And we think about the process. Go back to Jesus feeding the 5,000. Jesus doesn't just all of a sudden just, you know, pull fish and bread out of a hat. The little boy brings him his lunch. 
But somebody has to catch and process that fish. And somebody has to plant and harvest the wheat. And then grind it into flour. And then add salt and sugar and yeast and water and bake it. And then give it to the little boy so we can give it to Jesus. Quite frankly, it seems like kind of a waste of time to get to, this, to, get to the miracle. Let's speed this thing up, Jesus. We've got a lot to do. We've got a lot of people to feed. We've got a lot of things going on here. We don't have time for the process. But God always has time for the process. You think of the temptation of Jesus. He's been in the wilderness 40 days. He's been fasting the whole time. And now he is, as you can imagine, greatly hungry. What's the big deal about turning rocks into bread? I mean, it might save his life. Why is that such a big deal? Why is that such a problem? Because Jesus knows God doesn't work that way. God is, tends to not be interested in shortcuts. Which is one of the reasons we struggle with the kingdom is because we love shortcuts. We're always looking for a shortcut. We're always thinking, what's the quickest way I can get to the end and then I can sit back and relax and do nothing? Which is probably why God is not interested in shortcuts. He's interested in the process, day by day. You don't learn to trust using shortcuts. You learn to trust by seeing God in every day, every moment, all of life. And yes, it's slow, but quite frankly, the reason, one of the reasons I think God gives us things like work and we have to go through the process of preparing food and eating it and cleaning up afterwards is because it slows us down. We all need to be slowed down so we can see God. God's wanting us to put the brakes on. And what it does is it creates in us It removes from us that whole idea that we live with life of flitting around and stress and pressure and we have to accomplish all these great things for the kingdom. When those things will happen in their time as we see God in our lives every day. Now, it doesn't mean we're lazy. It doesn't mean we don't work. It doesn't mean that we're apathetic about the rest of the world. Not at all. We care about the world. We work. We do what we're supposed to do. This is not, this is not a, an invitation for all of us to just do nothing. That's not the kingdom either. But it is an invitation to see Christ in everyday moments. Instead of taking shortcuts and trying to rush to the end as fast as we can, that creates in us stress and pressure and everything that's contrary to the kingdom. We do what we're supposed to do We live as we're supposed to live. We're thinking about the world. We're thinking about Christ in every day. And we go about our lives doing everything God is leading us to do. And we see him in every moment and we trust him. That his timing is right. He knows what he's doing. It says something about our eternal view of the kingdom as well. Because we have a tendency to see what we do now as a closed system. That we have to accomplish everything now because after this, 
there's nothing more. It all changes. Nothing will continue on, and, and it does continue on. The kingdom keeps going. And we're a part of an eternal kingdom. And I'm convinced that in the eternal kingdom, we will continue to learn and grow and develop as followers of Jesus. Will it be different than now? It has to be different than now. But once we come to the point where we don't need to grow anymore, that we've learned everything we can about God, then we are God. And none of us are God. And I think heaven, part of it, our eternal existence will be the joy of God revealing more and more of himself to us. And we will work. And maybe we'll eat. I haven't figured that one out yet. It seems like we're going to do something with all the food we produce with our work. So I don't know where that's going to go. But we're going to continue on. And what we're doing now is developing a mindset of seeing God in every moment as we will do in eternity. God in every moment. God in the ordinary. I kind of think that our eternal existence, again, it will be different, but I don't think it's going to be one spectacular moment after another every second. The difference is we will see God clearly in every moment. And God is saying to us now, I want you to see me in every moment. And to sense my presence in the ordinary as well as the extraordinary. In those times we call spiritual. And the times we may think that aren't. Eugene Peterson talked about work as as a container for grace. And I think it's much like the ancient fathers and mothers saw work. As, as the means through which we are doing the things that God has gifted us to do. And we, and we live our lives in a way that people see Christ in us because we are modeling, we're doing what Christ and Jesus model for us to do. And we become agents of grace and justice and mercy and love and forgiveness. And I'm convinced that maybe one of the most profound ways in which we we share our, our love of Christ. And one of the most profound ways in which we live for Christ is looking for him in the ordinary moments of life. And when life isn't spectacular, when life is mundane, when all we're doing is, is the stuff we always do, that we, we still believe Christ is involved and Christ is present and he's working in us and he's working through us. It doesn't matter if our work is in the home or outside the home. It doesn't matter if, if we're doing things like mowing the grass or treating a patient or milking cows or preparing a lecture or changing a diaper or weeding the garden or cooking supper or sitting in a committee meeting or sitting on the deck. Whatever we're doing, God wants to be a part of it. He wants to use it to help us understand who he is and to change us and to work in us and to teach us to trust him more as he transforms our hearts every single moment. 
It's really what Paul writes to the Colossians when he says, whatever you do in word or in deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever you do. Whatever you do. I think it was Oswald Chambers who said something like this. There is really no such thing as secular life and sacred life. There is just life. And Jesus lived life. And my question for us is, do we? Every moment, every day, do we see Jesus? Father, thank you for your grace of being present in every moment. That the risen Christ, loose in the world, has no boundaries, but is present in every moment. Open our eyes to see that. Open our eyes to see you. And we ask this through Jesus. Amen. Please stand and join us as we sing.
bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen.